This evening, turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We appreciate the presence of everyone today. We had a good day today. Most Lord's Days are good, good days, and we've had another one today. We appreciate uh, everyone who's led us in worship this morning and then again this evening, and those who have participated from the pew as well. And uh, just uh, the good experience has been to, today getting together on the Lord's Day and worshiping and encouraging one another. Uh, on Thursday mornings, we have a group of guys, a group of men, who get together at IHOP right up the road here in Pelham uh, and eat breakfast together and have a little short Bible study together. Every now and then we'll send out an email inviting people uh, to come. You know, it's just it's mainly guys. Well, it's always guys. And a lot of guys, a lot of people here, a lot of men here have been through that at one time or another. We've been doing it for years and years, for a long, long time. We met over at IHOP on 280 for a while, and uh, we met at uh, Hamburger Heaven for a while, and we're back up here now. During COVID, we did it over the phone. We had a conference call type uh, call, and uh, we did it over the phone, and lots and lots of people have come through that, and we're still doing it. it we kind of moved it up to Thursday. It used to be on Saturdays at, at 7.30. We've moved it to uh, Thursday morning at 8 o'clock, and we'll have... Lately, we've had six or eight, ten or eleven men come and be part of that. It's great. Wayne's part of that, and Fred is part of that. And uh, DeWitt comes, and Robert comes. Sometimes David Fry is there, Roger's there. I'm there, and might be leaving somebody out. Brian Barham comes on occasion. Guy comes to that. And uh, we have a Bible study. We do a short Bible study. We enjoy one another's company and a lot of talk about bees and things like that. But uh, it's been a, a really good experience. Robbie Howard comes to that as well. And it's just a, a good opportunity to be together and study a little bit and enjoy one another's company. And like I said, we've been doing it a long time. We have a, a lesson that we plan to do from week to week. Right now we're going through Genesis. We've done lots of different things over the years. But right now we're going through Genesis and we're talking about Joseph, the story of Joseph there in the last half of the book of, of Genesis. But every now and then uh, we'll get on a rabbit trail. That's, that's the word that we, I think, that, I think Fred coined that. We uh, get off on a rabbit trail. You know what a rabbit trail is? You're walking down the main path and then the rabbit gets off the main path and he, he goes off in a on a tangent in a out into the brush somewhere, kind of off the beaten path. And every now and then we'll, we'll do a little rabbit trail. Somebody will bring up a subject that's not on the main path. You know, in this case, not in the book of Genesis, but something that's on somebody's mind. And we'll, we'll talk about that. Well, Matthew chapter 12 was a rabbit trail the other day. And we talked about it a little bit. It's kind of a, an interesting passage. It's challenging in some ways. We talked about it a little bit, and I thought, well, I'll just preach a lesson on that. And so let's go to Matthew chapter 12, and let's look at uh, the first section there in that, in that chapter. We'll just read through it, and then we'll make some observations. It says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples became hungry, began to pick the heads of grain and eat. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? 
how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so, we'll talk about this episode. You might want to hold your finger over and mark the second chapter. That's Mark's account of this episode. It has a little additional information. But we want to talk about the issue that the Pharisees raise on this occasion about Jesus and His disciples breaking the Sabbath and how that might apply to us. As you know, the, the Pharisees in the Gospels, we would say, are the, the foil in the story. They're, they're sort of the, the counterpoint. You have Jesus, and He's maintaining righteousness, and He's teaching good, He's teaching the Gospel. And then you have the Pharisees who are in opposition to that. They're often the, the opponents or the adversary in the story. And one of the things that they criticize Jesus about on multiple, multiple occasions is his respect for the Sabbath day. And so they'll often criticize Jesus for violating the Sabbath day. And it seems especially when he heals someone. On, on more than one occasion, Jesus will heal on the Sabbath day and he'll be criticized for it. And so in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 10, he heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day, and he's criticized for it. In Luke chapter 13, there is a woman who is stooped over, and Jesus heals her, and yet he's criticized. In chapter 14 of Luke, in verse 1, heals a man with dropsy. Now, I had to look up what dropsy was. I didn't know what dropsy was, but it's just an accumulation of fluid that causes swelling in the body, and, and so this was tormenting this man, and uh, he... Uh, Jesus healed him. could be a symptom of a more serious underlying condition. In John chapter 5, verse 9, he heals a man at the pool of Bethesda. And then he also heals the blind man in John chapter 9 on the Sabbath day. Well, he doesn't heal anybody on this occasion, but this does take place on the Sabbath. And he's criticized for what he does. Uh, his, his disciples are walking through the grain field and they're plucking the heads of grain and rubbing the heads of grain in, together in their hands like that perhaps and then, and then getting the kernel and eating it. And so they're, they're being criticized for that and by implication Jesus is being criticized. And so you're responsible for what your disciples are doing and so the criticism really falls back on Him as well. And so we'll talk about Jesus in the grain field tonight. Let's do a little background material on the Sabbath day. You know, why, why, why is the Sabbath day so important and why do they have such a problem with what Jesus does on the Sabbath day? Well, the Sabbath day, of course, is the seventh day of the week. It was a special day really from the very beginning. Look at Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2, God rests from His work of creation. In chapter 1, He creates all things in six days and then when the heavens and earth were completed and all their hosts, by the seventh day God completed His work which He had done, and He rested on the Sabbath day from all the work which He had done. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, or made it holy, because in it He rested from all His work which God had created and made. And so from the very beginning, really, from the very first seventh day, 
It was a special day. God rested, entered into His rest, and He consecrated it. He sanctified it. He made it holy. As we proceed through the Old Testament, we see that idea continuing. And so in Exodus chapter 20, we have the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath day or the seventh day is to be kept holy, and no, no work is to be done on the seventh day. So in verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath uh, of the Lord your God. In it you shall do, not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and, and made it holy. And so just as the Lord entered His rest on the seventh day, so you're to rest on the Sabbath day. You're not to do any work. You or your servants or your animals, no work to be done on the seventh day or the Sabbath day. You see that repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5 to the very next generation. You remember that first generation that came out of Egypt? They died in the wilderness. And so as they, the second generation was about to go into the land of promise, the law is repeated to them. And, and uh, among that or within that is the, the same idea. Keep the Sabbath day holy. No work was to be done on it. All work was, to, was forbidden. More details are given concerning the seventh day. As you work your way through the Old Testament, we won't read all of these passages, but you might just want to listen or take note of them. Um, Exodus chapter 23 and verse 12. They're oxen, they're donkeys, they're slaves, strangers that were in the land. Nobody was to work. It was a day of rest. And the Old Testament's just emphatic about that, isn't it? No work is to be done on the seventh day, the Sabbath day. Exodus 34, verse 21, even during plowing and harvesting. Now those are critical times of the year. If you're a farmer, plowing and harvesting, you got to get your crops in, and either get the seed in or get them harvested. You just don't have all winter to get that done. Got to get it done when, when the time is right. We lived in Illinois. They grew lots of corn, acres and acres, just seas of corn as you drove uh, down through the countryside especially. But at planting time, you would see in the middle of the night, the farmers are out driving their combines, driving their tractors, getting the, the seed in the ground in the middle of the night. Got to get it in the ground when the time is right. And the same thing with harvesting. you got to get the corn in at the right time when, when the harvest is right. But under the law, you couldn't even work in seed time or harvest, even in those critical times of the year. In chapter 35 of Exodus, in verses 2 and 3, complete rest, just absolute complete rest. We'll read those two verses. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy day, a Sabbath day of complete rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall not kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. You couldn't even start a fire on the Sabbath day. And so it gives absolute complete rest. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 19 and following. This is outside the, you know, the first five books, the books of law. This is in the prophetic material. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, they were not to carry a load. Can't carry a load, can't build a fire, don't do any work, don't plant your 
seed, don't harvest your grain, just complete rest on the Sabbath day. Might remember in Exodus chapter 16 when God is providing manna, He doesn't provide any manna on the Sabbath day. And remember, on the sixth day they were to gather twice as much manna as normal so that they would have food to eat on the seventh day. No manna was supplied. Even if it were supplied, they weren't supposed to go out and, and gather it. Exodus chapter 31 tells us that the Sabbath day is a day, uh, 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 a reminder of the covenant that God had with Israel. Exodus 31 verse 12, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And he goes on and provides more, more detail in that passage. But you're to work six days. You're not to work on the Sabbath day. If you work on the Sabbath day, you are to be put to death. This is a serious violation of the law. Verse 16 of that passage, Exodus 31 says, uh, So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. In the book of Leviticus, we find out that there was to be a holy convocation on the Sabbath day. Leviticus 23, verses 1 through 3. A convocation is a, an assembly, a gathering together. And so not only was there to be no work done, the Jews were to meet together, gather together in an assembly for worship and devotion. And so it's a day of rest, meant to be a day of rest, and a day of spiritual focus and in worship. As we've seen as we've gone through this material, seen it a couple of times, violations of the Sabbath was a serious offense. It was a capital offense. And whoever violated it was to be put to death. Now you might remember, you might be jumping ahead of me a little bit, Numbers chapter 15, remember there was a man that was picking up sticks on a Sabbath day. You remember that occasion? He went out and he was picking up sticks Perhaps he was getting ready to build a fire or something like that, but he's out there working, picking up sticks, and he was put to death. He was violating the Sabbath, a very serious event or offense. So, the Sabbath was made holy by God. They were to do absolutely no work on the Sabbath day. It was a day of rest and a day of spiritual focus, meditation, worship, so forth. Now, we've seen that there are some specific instructions in the law concerning the Sabbath and regulating the Sabbath, but not every situation is addressed in Scripture. So situations might arise as people live their lives that are not specifically addressed in Scripture. And so traditions develop to address those situations. Well, what do I do on this, in this situation or in that situation? Well, a, a, a body of tradition developed passed down orally from one generation to another, that address those situations. And so you had the law and the situations it addressed, and then you had the tradition and the situations that it addressed as well. There's an ancient document called the Mishnah. You may have heard of the Mishnah, a second century record of the oral traditional laws applying the Torah, the law, the law of Moses, the situations in life. And so this is a document that dates from the second century uh, AD, but it preserves traditions that were established long before that. And so 
uh, there's good reason to think some of these traditions at least reached all, all the way back into the, the time of the life of Christ. And so it preserved these traditions. And, and the Mishnah, you can get online, you can read a copy of the Mishnah today if, you, if you'd like to. Today many Orthodox Jews recognize 39 different actions limited in various ways on the Sabbath day. Here's a list of 39 different actions that you can only do in a limited way on the Sabbath day. These include carrying. So you only carry certain things or a certain weight or a certain amount on the Sabbath day. Otherwise you've violated the law. Burning, extinguishing, finishing, writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, and tearing. And so all of those actions are regulated. You go beyond the regulations. These are traditions that have developed, passed down through the years, ancient traditions, some of them at least. And so you violate those. You violated the Sabbath, and you've committed a very serious events. One of the sections has to do with threshing, threshing the grain. And it says... This includes all operations where food is separated from its natural container. And so you can't thresh the grain. You can't remove food from its natural container. Okay? The prime example is threshing grain to remove it from its husk. But squeezing a fruit for its juice is also included. The same is true of milking a cow. When you milk a cow, you're removing the food from its natural container, I guess. But, but that constitutes work, which is, a, according to the tradition, which violates the Sabbath. Now you can see what the Pharisees are upset about here in Matthew chapter 12. They're threshing, aren't they, the disciples of Jesus. They're separating the food from its natural container. They're plucking the heads of grain. They're rubbing the heads of grain like this. They're getting the kernel out and, and eating it. You're working. You're violating the Sabbath. You're, you're threshing. And so it's a very serious offense. The Pharisees, of course, were strict adherents to the traditions. They criticized Jesus' disciples and criticized Jesus by implication, violating the Sabbath. They were working by separating food from its natural container. And so they say, you know, why is it that your disciples do what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath day? Well, what about that? Let's think about that. Is, is Jesus or are His disciples violating the Sabbath day? Well, we've talked about all of this. Here's Jesus' response. We're going to just kind of pare this down to four observations. Well, th this particular statement is taken from Mark's account. Remember we said in the beginning, hold your finger over there in Mark's account and Mark the second chapter. In Mark the second chapter we find is in Mark's account of this, the, the statement that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was, this is verse 27 of Mark chapter 2, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now what does that mean? You know, it's kind of a, a little a pithy statement, but, but what does he mean by that? The Sabbath was made for man and for the Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath was made for man's good. It was made to benefit man. It was made for man. It was a good thing for man. It provided a day of rest, a day free from labor. 
And so you're not working seven days, day after day after day after day after day after day after day with no, with no rest. Here's a built-in day of rest once a week. And so that, that's good for man. That's for man's benefit. It was also a day of focus on the God of the covenant. Remember, a holy convocation was to be called on the Sabbath day. And so they come together and they focus on their relationship with God and God's blessings for them and just a day of rest and meditation, which was to their benefit. So the Sabbath was made for them. It's made for their good. It was really a, a gracious provision for Israel, wasn't it? And so God is, in a sense, He's doing them a favor. He's doing them good by setting aside the Sabbath day. The law sought to forbid the kind of work and the amount of work that would distract one from engaging in the rest from labor and worshiping God a day of, uh, of inactivity would provide. And so what the law sought to do is prohibit the kind of work that would distract from that, so that you're not resting on the Sabbath. And it would try to, it's trying to prohibit the amount of work that would distract from a person setting aside a day of week for spiritual uh, focus and, and meditation. And so that's, that's the purpose of the law. It's for man's good. And so we're not going to work on this day. We're going to try to prohibit all kinds of work that would distract from our focus on God, and it would, it would take us away from resting and involve us in arduous labor. Now, merely feeding oneself was not the kind of work that the law sought to prohibit, was it? And so the law didn't seek to forbid someone from feeding themselves. You know, that's not the purpose of the law. The law allowed for people to provide for their basic needs, and even the needs of others. And so in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 7, Jesus says, If you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. And so the law allowed for people to provide for their basic needs, and even needs of compassion, even the needs of others. And so Jesus, when He heals on the Sabbath day, is doing what's good for man. It's an act of compassion on the seventh day, the Sabbath day. And of course, it was not a violation of the kind of work that the law sought to prohibit, the kind of work and the amount of work that would distract from resting and worshiping on the Sabbath day. But the traditions of the Jews had so changed the focus of the Sabbath that men and women were no longer able even to provide for themselves or to uh, perform acts of mercy on the Sabbath. Their traditions made them prisoners to the Sabbath, rather than beneficiaries of God's gracious provision. And so you see, with the accumulation of all these traditions, now, now instead of focusing on God, you're measuring the, the weight of whatever it is you're carrying. You're measuring the distance that you're walking. And so the, it's, their traditions become a distraction from what the Sabbath was meant to do. So that now they couldn't even provide for themselves, couldn't even feed yourself on the Sabbath day in the way that the disciples were doing, much less see to the needs of others like Jesus did when He was healing someone. They, they'd become prisoners to the Sabbath, that is, the, at least to, to the traditions that are associated with the Sabbath by the Pharisees. 
And so the Sabbath is made for man. It's made for the good of man. And so you can do what you need to do to, to take care of yourself, to provide for your own basic needs and the basic needs of others as well. But that's, that's not a violation of the Sabbath. And so Jesus affirms his innocence in here. At the end of verse 7, If you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. These men are innocent. They're condemning them, but they haven't violated the Sabbath as the Pharisees charged them with doing. Well, there's another uh, observation to make or consideration to think about. Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 looks at, at two examples, raises two examples in his response. He says in verse 5, Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Well, what's he saying there? Well, it seems that he's saying, you know, all activity on the Sabbath is not a violation of the Sabbath. And so you have the priests, they perform their work on the Sabbath. They're priests. Their work is, to, at least in part, to circumcise little baby boys when they're born. On the eighth day, if the eighth day falls on the Sabbath day, they circumcise them according to the law. And so, uh, um, Jesus points that out that, that, that example, saying that you know, all activity, all effort performed on the Sabbath is not, not all activity performed on the Sabbath is sinful. The priests performed their work, and yet they didn't violate the Sabbath. Jesus says they're innocent. Their work in the temple, performed in obedience to the law, and obedience to the covenant between God and Israel, did not violate the Sabbath regulations. Now, here's the implication of that. If their work in the temple was sanctioned by God, even when it was done on the Sabbath, the work of Jesus, who is greater than the temple, is also sanctioned by God. So here are the priests doing their work on the Sabbath, doing it in the temple, in fulfillment of the law. And so if their work in the temple is sanctioned by God, even though done on the Sabbath, certainly Jesus is greater than the temple. His work also approved of by God. And so it's not a violation of the Sabbath day. The other example that Jesus raises here is the example of David. Now, this is uh, in verse, in verse, uh, in verse 3. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but for the priests alone? Uh, uh, when David is fleeing from Saul, this is 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. He's, he's fleeing, he goes to Nob, uh, he's hungry, his companions are hungry. And he asked, do you have any bread here? Asked the priest there, do you have any bread here? And he says, well, all we've got is the, the consecrated bread, the holy bread, the, the show bread, or the bread of presence. That's all we've got. And David takes that bread, and, and he and his companions eat it. That, that bread was changed every Sabbath day. Every seventh day the bread was changed. And so it may very well be that what happened is David was there on the seventh day. They had... The, the old bread, the weak old bread, and that was given to David and it was replaced. Don't know all those details, but that's a, at least a possibility. 
Now, what happens is that is the Pharisees are making an exception for David because of his position. Now, David is a great king, and it's understandable. He's a great king, and so he sees an exception. He's justified in eating the showbread and eating the consecrated bread. And so we're willing to justify his behavior because of his position. On the other hand, Jesus is even greater than David, but he doesn't receive any consideration from the Pharisees, even though he had not done anything wrong. And so he's showing their hypocrisy and all of that. Now you justify the great King David when he did wrong. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12 that it was not lawful for him to eat this bread. Now, what David is doing was wrong. And yet you justify him because he's the beloved King David. Now I'm greater than David and I haven't done anything wrong. And yet you condemn me. And so he's exposing their inconsistency, if not outright hypocrisy. In Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 16, this statement is made, but, but to, to, to what shall I compare this generation, Jesus says? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't, didn't mourn. John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by our deeds. There's no pleasing you. You know, uh, you know we come play the flute, and you criticize us for that. We sing a dirge, you criticize us for that. There's no pleasing you. That's kind of the idea here. You know, here's David, the beloved king. You justify him even though he did wrong. I haven't done anything wrong, yet you criticize me. And so he's simply exposing their inconsistency and hypocrisy. Jesus maintains his innocence. After all is said and done throughout all of this discussion, Jesus maintains his innocence. You see it again in verse 7. If you had known what this means, I desire compassion, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. It's very clear Jesus is maintaining his innocence in all of this. Well, I want to consider one other thing associated with, with the passage. Sometimes it's used to allow a relaxed or lax view of obedience. And so the argument goes something like this. You know, David violated the law by eating the consecrated bread, but Jesus didn't consider it to be serious. He, he, he violated the law, but Jesus wasn't upset with that. He doesn't consider it to be a serious violation. He doesn't consider it to be a very big deal. It may have been a technical violation, but it was a minor violation. Or the, the circumstances allowed for it. David the king was on the run. He was hungry. So the circumstances allowed for it. And maybe the disciples also committed a minor violation when they, along with David, ate the consecrated bread. And so... We shouldn't really be too concerned about minor violations to God's law. Jesus didn't get too upset about those things. And we really shouldn't get upset about those things ourselves. After all, we really don't want to be excessively strict, do we? We don't want to be too strict. And this particular episode in the life of Jesus is sometimes used to support that kind of lax view or relaxed view of obedience. Well, I want to respond to that a little bit. Jesus just does not excuse or justify or approve of David's actions. He says that what David did was unlawful. 
He doesn't excuse it or justify it or, or approve it. He says it's unlawful. Neither does he say his disciples had done wrong. In fact, he says that they're innocent. Again, verse 7. And so Jesus is not excusing unlawful behavior or, or justifying transgressions of the law or suggesting we can relax our standard of obedience. He is exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They condemned those they did not favor, though they were innocent. And they excused those they did favor, even though they were guilty. He also criticizes their traditions. They had misused or missed the purpose of the Sabbath by enslaving men to their traditions. And Jesus' teaching restores the divine purpose for the Sabbath. He's able to do this because He is Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 8 of Matthew chapter 12, He is Lord of the Sabbath. He has authority over the Sabbath. He understands the Sabbath. He instituted the Sabbath. He knows the purpose of it and how it should be you know, how it should be regulated. He is Lord of the Sabbath. And he understands and affirms his own innocence. And then my last point is this, that neither Jesus nor the writers of the New Testament endorse a lax view of obedience. If Jesus is endorsing that in this passage, it's just out of step with everything else he taught. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4. He answered and said, It's not written, or is it, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's, that's not a relaxed standard of obedience, is it? Man shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 19. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Again, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments. That's not a relaxed view of obedience, is it? Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and, and does them, now, the American Standard Bible says and acts on them, but if you look at the footnote, it says does them, which is better. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. Maybe compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and then a little bit later, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. We like a foolish man who built his house on the, on the sand. Again, hearing the words and doing them. Hearing the words and not doing them. And so obedience is critical, isn't it? In Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things that I say? <laughs> you know? Again, not, not a lax or a relaxed view of obedience. And then look at Matthew chapter 23. We talked about this at some length not too long ago, but in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And he says in verse 23, what are you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites? You tithe mint and dill and cumin, and when neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things that you should have done, and not left the other undone. Jesus doesn't say, don't worry about tithing mint. He said, you ought to be doing that. Your problem is you're neglecting doing the weightier matters of the law. It's not an either-or situation, it's a both-and situation. 
And so Jesus doesn't promote a relaxed view of obedience. Luke 16, verse 10 says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Think about Jesus' own actions in John chapter 8 and verse 29. I always do those things that are pleasing to Him. Always. Not most of the time, not some of the time. I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. In Mark chapter 10, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus asking Him, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, of course, keep the commandments. The rich young ruler says, I've kept all of those from, the, from my youth up. Jesus says, remember what Jesus says? One thing you lack. <laughs> One thing you lack. Sell what you've got, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. The other New Testament writers emphasize obedience as well. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. You purify your souls through obedience. James chapter 1 teaches us to be doers of the law, not merely hearers. And then he goes on into chapter 2 where he talks about holding our faith with an attitude of personal favoritism. He says in verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1 raises the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And after all, we live in an age of grace, right? And so strict obedience, not necessarily all that important, just get the big things right and grace will cover everything else. Should we continue to sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. God forbid. Don't you know that all we have been baptized into Christ, been baptized into His death? We've been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Don't you understand that all we who have died to sin, you know, we've all died to sin, how, how can we live in it longer, any longer? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Absolutely not. Romans 6 verse 15. And so Jesus doesn't promote a relaxed standard of obedience, either in His teaching or His own personal life. The other New Testament writers don't promote that either. And I understand we live in an age of grace, but God's grace shouldn't be taken as permission to disobey or be lax in our obedience. In fact, if anything, it calls us to a higher level of obedience, doesn't it? Just like we talked about this morning, a life of thankfulness, a life of gratitude seeks to please Him in all things. And so it really calls us to a, a higher standard. Is it too much to ask people to obey the commands of God? I mean, is that, is that too much? Is it too much to ask people to obey God's commands? You know, John tells us that God's commands are not burdensome. Of course, to hear us talk, say, you know, to hear, to hear us talk, you think God's commands are burdensome. <laughs> oh, it's just too much. You know? it, 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 it's just too strict. It's just such a burden. No. John says God's commands are not burdensome. No, it, it's not too much to ask people to obey the teaching of Christ. And so instead of bringing His standard down, 
We need to raise ourselves up and obey in all things. I understand that's a lofty aspiration. I understand that, and one that we may never attain. But again, we're seeking to live day by day on a higher lane, a plane, a higher level. We're seeking to serve better. We're seeking to obey more consistently, not less. Well, I hope that's been helpful in some way. It's a little bit of a tricky passage, I suppose, and complicated a little bit. I'm, I don't know that I've explained it very well tonight, but I've given it my, my best shot uh, tonight, and uh, hopefully it's been helpful in some way. Is Jesus promoting some sort of lower standard of obedience? Don't worry about the small things. Don't be excessively strict. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. We're called to obey in all things. Now, we may not attain that, I understand. But that's the goal that we need to strive to reach. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for all the things that you've done for us. We, we think about our own actions, our own attitudes, our own words. And we wonder, Father, why? You know, why, why you've gone to such great lengths to bring us into fellowship with yourself. And yet you have. You bestow your love upon us. You extend your grace and mercy and compassion toward us. You've made it possible for us, as weak as we are and as sinful as we are, to be your children and to be in good standing with you and to enjoy this relationship, this fellowship with you. It's made possible through your Son, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth and lived among us as a man. He took our sins upon himself and atoned for them on the cross shed His blood so that we might be forgiven and that we might be Your children. Father, we pray that we'll serve You diligently, that we'll serve You faithfully, that we'll serve You more and more, better and better as days go by. Help us, Father, to strive to achieve higher levels of service and obedience. Father, we pray that You'll Help us to see that lower, lowering your standard is not the way to go, is not the way to please you. Help us not to be satisfied with that, but to raise our standard to be more in conformity with the example that your Son has set for us. We're thankful, Father, for your long-suffering toward us. We're thankful for your patience with us as we strive to do these things imperf imperfectly day by day. We pray that you'll continue to be patient toward us as we grow and mature in the faith. We're thankful for the gift of your Son and the example that he set for us. We pray that we'll follow faithfully in his footsteps from here throughout the rest of our lives on into eternity. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you're subject to the invitation,